0: Welcome to Complete Curiosity, the podcast that addresses the big questions in little segments.
1: Hello, and welcome to mental health strategies that work and ones that don't, with Alla Watkins and me, Casey Ledger. This week, we aim to have a very practical session with a number of emotional well-being tools and approaches that cut through and really make a big difference. So Alan, welcome, let's dive straight in. And many people realize that it's not just a a physical crisis but a big mental health crisis. What's your take on that?
0: Well, we really are living at an interesting moment. I mean, I think we're almost going through 10 years in three months. So it's transformation like we've never seen before, but all the rules still apply. So in a crisis like this, how we cope with the crisis is the same as how we would cope with a crisis when there isn't a pandemic. And two of the critical things are the speed and quality of decision-making. So for example, I think it's now fairly obvious that certainly many health systems around the world didn't respond fast enough in terms of getting their act together, in terms of testing people. We didn't order enough tests. We weren't widely distributed with our tests. And part of the slowdown was that even when we started getting the tests, we had to check whether they worked. And the same was true with ventilators. We didn't have enough ventilators. We didn't scale up quick enough, even when we saw this crisis going on in in Japan. And even when we started to get ventilators, we had to test them. So in a crisis like a pandemic crisis, you've got to move much faster and quality, the quality of testing, the quality of ventilators is critically important. And those rules apply to mental health. So one of the reasons for doing this particular webinar is what works in terms of mental health. We haven't got time to do, you know, an eight week retreat. We haven't got time to cultivate a really sophisticated yoga practice. People need something that works today, right now. And so that's kind of what we're going to touch on today is what mental health strategies work and can work for you today. The will help you today rather than it's going to take me weeks and weeks to get good at this. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're going to cover. And the start point in even understanding mental health is the word mental health or the word mental health is itself a bit of a misnomer because most people who have mental health issues, it's not really mental and it's not even health. So let me see. But if I can. What do exp- you mean by that? Yeah. So people who are anxious or panicking, there is nothing wrong with their mental processes. So, it's not a mental issue. Cognition is normal in most cases of depression, in most cases of anxiety. When people are frightened, their cognitive processes are normal. So, mental health really should be reserved when the cognitive processes don't work. So, schizophrenia would be an example. The, the cognitive processes aren't working in the normal fashion. So, what we really should be calling it is emotional well being. So, it's not really mental, it's emotional. And so there's a misunderstanding of how the human system really works and how it's structured. So we mislabel it. Now, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt if you're anxious and fearful, it can ultimately lead to a health problem. But in the first instance, it's really a development problem, is most human beings haven't yet developed the ability to regulate their emotions to any sophisticated degree. So they can't maintain well being.
1: You can do that at will. You can regulate your emotion.
0: You can indeed. And you can do that relatively quickly. So again, it doesn't need an eight week training course or practice. In fact, we're going to show you how to do that today. So if I can just show you a slide in terms of how is this human system really structured, a lot of the confusion arises from the fact that we're focused too superficially, if you will. And so you can understand why this happens if you expand that. Most people really are focused on the results they want from their life, whether it's a business result or a sports result or an academic result or whatever. And in order to get that result, they focus on their behavior. What do I need to do to get that result? So that's all above the surface, you know, but beneath the waves of that surface, there's something else going on. So whether people do or don't do anything is really driven by how we think. So that's where you've got cognitive behavior therapy. That's thinking, behavior, and the outcome. And even what in the best do hands, everything
1: we change how we think.
0: Yes. Everything we do is dependent on how we think. So even if I'm giving you some advice today, if you think I'm an idiot, you won't take the advice. Or if you think what I'm suggesting is nonsense, you won't follow the advice. So whether you do or don't do anything with what I'm sharing is ultimately dependent on how you think. So in order to try and get you to change what you're doing, uh, I have to try and change your thinking. But that's not enough, as we'll show you. You've got to go deeper than that. But cognitive behavior therapy, even in the best hands, uh, under optimal conditions, is only 50% effective. And it takes a long time to get good at it. So we're saying that there's stuff that you can do, which is much faster, that will work today, better I think than cognitive behavior therapy because the problem with cognitive behavior therapy is it's not really attacking the problem where the problem really exists as you shall see so thinking strategies you know that's why think positive doesn't really move the dial you know affirmation I mean it's a nice thing to do and I'm not saying you shouldn't try these things but in a crisis it won't really move the dial it won't help fast enough so if you go below the level of thinking what is really determining what we do or don't think well that's simply how we feel about things. Feeling determines thinking. There is a loop. The the two things affect each other. Thinking affects feeling, feeling affects thinking. But in that loop, as you can see, the upward arrow is feeling affects thinking more than thinking affects feeling. So in the interplay between thinking and feeling, feeling is the dominant player. So if you want to change the outcome, you have to change how people feel more than changing how they think. If you change how they feel, you can change how they think. But even if you could do that, it's still not enough because you've got to go even deeper to where the problem really exists in terms of where the turbulence is. And that's below the level of feeling. And that is emotion. And that's why I say what's misdiagnosed as mental health is really emotional turbulence. So when my emotions are all over the place, I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm stressed out, I'm overwhelmed, I'm panicking. That's really well beneath the waves. It's deep in the the human system is where the problem really is. So I think calling it mental health is two floors above where the issue really is. And doing mental health or cognitive or thinking strategies is operating on a level where the problem really isn't. The problem is at an emotional level. And even at the emotional level, there's something even driving our emotions. So below the emotional level, there is our biology, our physiology, if you will. So there are multiple levels to the human system. And one of the reasons we really struggle is we don't realise that. We've collapsed those bottom three levels, physiology, emotion and feeling, into cognition, into thinking. And we mm-hmm. think it's mental, and it's not mental. And the irony is, is we then have to have all sorts of destigmatizing initiatives where, oh, you're a mental case. You know, we've got to destigmatize mental health. Well, one of the best ways of destigmatizing mental health is stop calling it mental. It's not a mental problem. It's largely an emotional disturbance. And once you teach people, it's not even health, it's actually a developmental issue. Then if we start to develop our skillfulness at regulating our emotion, which is what we're going to talk about today, suddenly you're making very rapid progress. And that's what we're going to unpack today. We can start to cultivate control of our emotional state. In fact, the journey starts even the next level down, which is controlling our biology. And what's really interesting, having taught this for 25 years to people, this isn't months and months of training. People can start to get control over their biology in two or three minutes.
1: So what's the practicalities of that then, Alan?
0: Well, where it starts, is you've got to control your biology, control something that you know, you, you know that you're controlling. So we start with breathing. So when you're controlling your breathing, there are 12 different aspects to your breath that you can learn to control. But most people are a bit confused. So they'll say, oh, take a few deep breaths. If you want to sort yourself out, take a few deep breaths. And that's not true. Deep breathing is not going to actually change that, you know, your biology that much. What you need to do is take a few rhythmic breaths, not a few deep breaths. So let me unpack that a little bit. If you breathe deeply... What that really means is you take air into the bases of your lung. So when people say, take a few deep breaths, they don't even mean deep breathing, they mean large. So that's volume, that's not depth, they're different things. So this is how confused people are. People are saying deep breathing, but they mean large breathing. And we don't even think that that's the critical factor. What we think is critical is take a few rhythmic breaths. So if you learn to breathe rhythmically, and evenly so once you've got the rhythm sorted out which is a fixed ratio of in to out then you've got to get the silky smoothness of that rhythm going so breathing rhythmically evenly and then through the center of the chest and through the heart every day so the skill that we say that to stabilize your biology is to breathe rhythmically evenly and through the heart every day which spells breathe to help you remember what you're meant to be doing does that make sense
1: can I just ask about that, rhythmically, does that have to be the, the same in and, in and out? Obviously, people, lots of people know different things about parameters about breath. But What does rhythmically actually mean?
0: Whether it's five seconds in, five seconds out, or four seconds in, six seconds out, that's something called pattern. That's one of the 12 parameters, but that's less critical than you fix the ratio. So it doesn't really matter whether the ratio is 5-5 five, five, or 4-6, so long as you pick a ratio and stick to it. So, you know, breathe in four seconds, breathe out six seconds, if you wish, or breathe in five, breathe out five. So find the ratio, the rhythm that works for you. And the rhythm that works for you is really largely dependent on how big your lungs are, which is often men have slightly larger lungs than women. Adults have slightly larger lungs than children as a general rule. So find the rhythm that works for you and stick to that rhythm. So get that rhythm going and then make it nice and silky smooth. So breathe rhythmically and then evenly and not abdominal breathing, breathe through the center of the chest. So when we teach this to children in schools, we say put your hand over your heart and imagine you're breathing through the hand. Now, obviously people are still breathing through the nose and the mouth, but your attention is located in the heart area, not the abdomen. And that's really important when you move up the iceberg to get control of other things. So you can stabilize your biology today. And one thing I might add is when you see people who are panicking Panicking and uh, anxiety often er- involves rapid, erratic, and shallow breathing patterns. So if you see somebody who's panicking, they're often going, oh. you know, their breathing is rapid, erratic, and shallow. So if you just replace that breathing pattern with rhythmic, even breathing, what you'll often find is the anxiety starts to subside. Because in order to even experience anxiety, you have to breathe in a disordered fashion. So if you replace that pattern with rhythmic even breathing, often the anxiety will subside. So and I just encourage people to just put that yeah. idea to the test.
1: I can feel over a hundred people just taking a, a breath right now, thinking, is there any validity to what he's saying?
0: Well, it doesn't even matter whether you believe me or not, because you can put it to the test and Hopefully, when they're taking a breath right now, they're taking a rhythmic, even breath, not a deep breath, a rhythmic, even breath through the centre of their chest. And so that will stabilise the biology. And I've done TED Talks about this. You can go online and see them, where we've pulled somebody out of the audience and literally showed them live what happens to their biology when they're breathing erratically and panicking and their brain shuts down. And then what happens when they generate rhythmic, even breath through the centre of the heart, the biology changes instantly. And so this isn't weeks of practice. You can do that right now and see the difference. So that's where the journey starts.
1: So would you suggest people do this kind of first thing in the morning or just before a a difficult meeting or?
0: Well, it's it's an interesting question. So often when we teach people how to do this, they say, and we come back, you know, a few weeks later and say, how did you get on with that breathing skill? And people say, I forgot. (laughs) What, you forgot to breathe? (laughs) So you held your breath for three weeks since I last saw you. I mean... (laughs) The truth is people are breathing all the time. So we're always practicing some type of rhythm. The only real question is what rhythm are you practicing? And of course, most people are practicing an erratic, shallow, disordered pattern, interspersed with yawning, you know, maybe burping or all sorts of strange things. And all we're really suggesting is replace your disordered daily pattern with rhythmic even breathing. You can't overdose on rhythmic even breathing and it improves your biology. And by the way, it also improves your brain function, enables yeah. you to make better choices. So that's the start of the journey and it stabilized the bottom of the iceberg.
1: So I'm kind of hearing life as practice here. So you can, you can practice that kind of coherent breathe whilst you're waiting for the kettle to boil.
0: Exactly, the- anytime you remember, you know, set your watch, your watch pings and you do two minutes of rhythmic even breathing. You know, when you're going out for a walk, you know, you practice your breathing, you know, get your breathing rhythmic and even and in step with the fact that you're taking paces, you know, breathe rhythmically and evenly through the center of the chest. That's the start point. And then we move up to the next where most of the action really is, which is the emotions and feeling. And so what I want to share is what we call the shift skill. So let me just explain where this came from. So this came from looking at what do people do currently when they're really struggling? So, Imagine you're trying to figure something out and you're not quite sure what to do. And you go and ask people, what do you do when you're struggling to figure stuff out? And you get all sorts of suggestions. Uh, I go for a walk. Okay. You know, I phone a friend. You know, I count to 10. I sleep on it. You know, I exercise. I go down the gym when we used to better go down the gym. You know, all sorts of strategies. And when you boil them all down, what you discover is sometimes those strategies work and sometimes they don't. So we analyze that and think, well, when they do work, why do they work? And the answer to that question is they always work for the same reason. So I want to show you what the steps are. So every single one of those strategies, say you're trying to write a letter to somebody or or an email to somebody, you're not quite sure, you've got to stop what you're doing and shift your attention to something else. So whether it's shifting your attention to the friend you're ringing, shifting your attention to nature on your walk, shifting your attention to that glass of wine to something funny you're watching on the television, a piece of music, every single technique when it works involves you stopping doing what you're doing. You stop the email and you shift your attention. And then when you shifted your attention, what was really interesting is if the thing that you shifted to induced a positive emotion, then the technique would work. Now, if it didn't induce, like if you go for a, for a walk to try and clear your head and during that walk, you stood on some chewing gum, it would induce a negative emotion, or maybe you stood on a cow pat or something, it would induce a negative emotion, and then that walk wouldn't help you. If you phone a friend and they amped up your panic because they were panicking too, it wouldn't induce a positive emotion, and therefore it wouldn't help. But on those occasions when that glass of wine, that cigarette, that cup of coffee, that friend made you laugh or you felt connected to them, when you shift your your attention to something that does induce a positive emotion, the technique works. And it's not just the induction of that positive emotion, you actually have to feel it in your body. So it goes beyond just it being there. So the additional uh, step is to feel it, feel it in your body and allow it to turn your frontal lobes back on. So all of those techniques, whether it's count to 10, go for a walk, phone a friend, sleep on it, listen to music, whatever they all, they all work for those four reasons. And all we've done with the shift skill is added a missing piece, which is sometimes when you're housebound, you can't go for a walk. But what you can do is focus on your own heart, the center of your chest, the place where most human beings experience positive emotion. So if you put your heart back into the process, you don't need to phone a friend because maybe you ring the friend up and they're not available. Maybe you've run out of coffee. You know, maybe it's too dark to go for a walk. But what you can do, your heart is always with you. So you can focus on the area where you feel positive emotion and feel and try and use your heart to induce that positive emotion, really feel it flowing through your body and allow it to turn your brain back on. So that's you shifting your emotional state. Now, the good news is all human beings shift their emotional state all the time. We just don't do it on purpose. And so the third skill that you've just flashed up on the slides there is something that we call the mastery skill. Now, for most human beings, because we've never developed the ability to control our emotions, we can't. So if you ask somebody saying, okay, well, you're feeling a bit anxious right now. I want you to move to a different planet. I want you to move to a state of joy. Well, I can't do that. I'm worried. What do you mean move to joy? Most human beings cannot do that. And the reason they can't do it is they've never practiced. And when they try to shift, they can't move across to a positive emotional state and stay in that new state and the reason they can't do that is they don't really know what they're shifting to so you know joy well well, I know roughly intellectually what joy is as an intellectual cognitive concept Mm. but what is it as an experience when I feel joy or appreciation or contentment or tranquility or patience when I feel that in my body what am I actually tuning into what am I actually feeling And most people have never considered that at all. So they just don't know. So what we did is we thought about that and co-opted wine tasting as it happens. So we look at, well, okay, if your emotional literacy is poor, let's cultivate some literacy. And so we looked at, well, where do people cultivate their palate in wine tasting? Well, let's cultivate the emotional palate. So if you go on a wine tasting course, they'll, you, know, you don't really know anything about wine. They'll tell you, tell me about the color of the wine, tell me about the smell of the wine, tell me about the taste of the wine. So if you use those same principles, just tell me about the basic features of that emotion, tell me about the movement features of that emotion, tell me about the special features. So this sounds like a really weird thing to do, but even people who've never ever considered this at all say, okay, I'm going to try and help you access a state of contentment, for example. Now, where in your body would you imagine contentment exists? And then you've got to get people to tune into their body, not just think about this and not imagine where it would exist if it did ever exist. This is not a visualization or an imagination. This isn't some NLP thing. This is a a recreation, a reliving, a re-experiencing of the state of contentment. And interestingly, most people experience many of their positive emotions in the center of their chest. So you simply get people to write that down. So it's an observation, not an imagination, not a visualization. It's really trying to observe a positive emotion. So when you have a positive emotion, observe it, try and describe it to yourself. There's no right or wrong answers, but just write down a description. So I was teaching this, by the way, to a guy a few years ago. And I sent him away to reflect on the state of contentment, to see if he could really master that state, really teach himself what that state was. And when he came back, I said, okay, well, tell me what you discovered about the state of contentment living on that planet. And he described it to me. I'm just going to share this with you now because it really resonated with me. And he described in terms of all these different features that he really observed it and these features exist. And he said to me, you know, contentment, Alan, is a warm, glowing ember at the base of my heart. It purrs like a Cheshire cat. It goes, mmm, and it oozes up into my shoulders and my head and down my arms, right to the tips of my fingers. And it goes down through my legs to the tips of my toes. And it puts a gentle smile on my face. And as he was describing it, he infected me with it. I mean, I was right there with him. I felt that contentment. And that's the good news is when you really get good at these emotions, they're contagious, positively contagious. So just as laughter is contagious, all emotions, negative and positive, are contagious. So if we start to practice really not just thinking, positive thinking, not just thinking even about an emotion, but experiencing them. And the more that we can describe them to ourselves and the the more accurately that description, the more it is possible to look at it, observe it and reinstall it in our body. So we can reinstall these emotions because we know what are the features of that emotion that we're trying to get hold of and relive. And so I can tell you that just with a little bit of practice, just describing these things to yourself, and it takes five or 10 minutes to write a description and then try and recreate it in your body. Uh, That's mastering an emotion. And with a bit of practice, you can get good pretty quickly on any emotion. So if there's any emotion you want to have in your life a bit more of Katie just Objectify it look at it reinstall it and try and re-experience it. Does that make sense?
1: It does it does and kind of excitement is what I'm feeling at the moment and I'm also looking at my clock So I know you've been doing a lot of a lot of talking We're going to take some questions in a minute, but I just wanted you to explain a little bit um, kind of leading on from mastery almost kind of a little bit of the science, if you like, behind emotional well-being.
0: Right. And so not only are people obsessed with mental health when it's really emotional well-being, is they're also obsessed with relaxation, right? And there's a sort of mistaken belief, just in the same way as people are mistaken about deep breathing, that relaxation by definition is helpful. Well, I've actually given lectures to the Institute of Psychiatry under the title Relaxation Can Kill You. Because it can, because there are two types of relaxation. So if you look at the slide you're sharing, imagine there's a vertical axis and at the bottom of that vertical is relaxation. And to the bottom right, there is relaxed but negative emotion. And the bottom left is relaxed and positive emotion. And of course, what you really want is relaxed positive, not relaxed negative. So relaxed negative would be things like apathy, inattention, detachment, indifference, or what my kids would call whatever that state of helpless and hopeless, and all of those types of planets. So that's actually very detrimental to your health. You don't want relaxed negative. And it's particularly pernicious because many people think they're okay because they're relaxed, but they're still running all the stress hormones through their body, particularly something called cortisol, the body's main stress hormone. So if you're relaxed negative, you're still running high tides of cortisol. Mm -hmm. But if you're relaxed positive, that is helpful. Things like contentment, curiosity, receptivity, interested, equanimity, serenity, things like that. So relaxation can be very positive, but can also be very negative. And in the same way, if you go directly up, up the vertical axis, you can get to a state of activation or arousal. Now, that also has two forms. You can be activated negative, things like fear and panic and anxiety and worry, many of the things we're seeing in the current pandemic. Or you can be activated positive, things like passion, enthusiasm, excitement, which you just explored, motivated, committed, determined. And again, it's the activated positive that you want, the top left, not the top right, where there's all the current pandemic feeling. So many people are living their life on the top right, panicking and worrying, and then dropping to the bottom right, helpless and hopeless. And then they try and do something about it, and they get angry about things. And so they vacillate on the right-hand side, pumping out high levels of cortisol. And of course, one of the things that cortisol, the the body's main stress hormone, does is it impairs your immune system. So the more you live in negative emotion, the more you live in anxiety and fear, the more likely you are to be infected, the more likely that infection is going to be more severe, and the more contagious you're going to be to others. So we've got to start proactively moving ourselves to the left-hand side, to where positive emotion exists, and the body's antidote to cortisol is something called DHEA. So it's, um, actually,
1: it's actually working against us, not just because it's a negative emotional state, and maybe not all negative emotions are, are necessarily bad, but you're saying that it actually impairs our physical immunity.
0: Of course it does, which is why we have to be very careful when we start amplifying through our own social media channels, or, you know, and the media it, it, you know, isn't very aware of this, is every story that you tell that is scary, is actually increasing people's risk. So not that the media should be dishonest about what's going on. Of course, we want to hear the story, but there's a way of telling a story where you can make it sound really dangerous and really worrying and project fear, or you can admit the truth of the difficulty and say, well, look, despite that difficulty, we have to remain resolute. You know, here in Britain, certainly, there's a sort of fighting spirit, you know, that sort of fight on the beaches kind of mentality. We're in this together. And that feeling of togetherness hopefully will push us over to the positive side. And that has direct immunological consequences. The first rule of emotional regulation is to admit the truth. If we feel lousy on the right-hand side, that's where we are. So the first rule of emotional regulation is to admit where you are because, and by the way, if you're not sure where you are, you're lost. So we've got to cultivate some awareness of where am I really? And the truth is that when we go around and we say to each other, you know, how are you feeling today? And a lot of people will respond, I feel fine. Well, do you? I mean, do you really feel fine? Maybe what you're actually feeling is not bad. Maybe what you're actually feeling is so-so. Maybe what you're actually feeling is okay. Do you even know the difference between fine, not bad, okay, and so-so? They're all different planets. What? So most people don't have the literacy to distinguish those different planets. So when people say they feel something, it's based on most human beings only really are familiar with about 12 planets in the u- this universe of emotions. And of course, there are 34,000 planets, Katie. 34,000?
1: 34,
0: 34,000 34, emotion that it's possible to experience in your life.
1: Some of those must be pretty granular and, and fine. Some of, them
0: are, some of them are quite obscure, I admit that. <laughs> you know, but interestingly, most human beings don't know more than six Some people only know two. You know, I feel shit or not bad. You know, that's their entire experience of life. You know, and currently in the current pandemic, many people are experiencing a lot of the planets on the right-hand side, on the negative side, not realizing that actually there's some work for them to do to try and deliberately shift themselves to the left-hand side, the positive side. And the first step is get your breathing sorted out, and that will at least take you to the midpoint right? So it will cut off a lot of those negatives. And so most of the negative emotions on the right-hand side require you to have disordered breathing. So if you just stabilise your breathing, you'll at least get to the centre. But the real so the, benefit... So the breathe
1: skill will at least take us to, to here, even if it doesn't actually take us...
0: Yeah, it uh, will take you to the centre positive. of the universe, right. But the real game change in terms of your immunity, your biology, and, and by the way, your performance, whether it's your intellectual performance or your career performance, you basically your ability to problem-solve, really kicks in when you go over to the DHEA side, the antidote to cortisol, to the positive emotional side. And what's very interesting is when you get over that side, you can start to create virtuous circles. So when you start to feel a bit more positive, your body produces more DHEA, which by the way, makes you feel more positive, which makes you produce more DHEA, which makes you feel more positive, and you get a virtuous cycle going. So just as people get stuck on the negative side and pump up their cortisol and of course one of the consequences of cortisol is it makes you feel lousy which then increases the cortisol which makes you feel lousy so on the right hand side you get vicious cycles on the left hand side you get virtuous cycles so if people start to shift either by first of all stabilizing their breathing then by trying to engage with their heart and it really feel trigger a positive emotion, really feel it in your body and once you've got it going quickly jot down on a piece of paper what that really feels like, annotate it, observe it, describe it, and try and relive it. Then you're starting to get yourself over the left-hand side, which will significantly improve your immunity, make you more resilient. And by the way, as a side effect, it'll make you a better performer, regardless of what you're trying to do.
1: We're having a whole mixture of things come, come in, Alan, about, you know, people literally all over the universe. One person says they're lost.
0: Let me just intervene there, because if people haven't got navigational control, and by the way, until you teach people navigational control, most people haven't got navigational control. Most people are lost, and most people have no navigational control, partly because this is not something we teach at schools. And we've just started doing this again. I mean, we did it some years ago, but we've just started again teaching this to school children. is this is not something you teach at school. But it really should be part of the curriculum, is teaching people emotional regulation how do I get over to the left-hand side so if I'm bouncing around all four quadrants of the universe that's it's like you know the solar winds if you will to continue the metaphor you know something happens and it blows you off course and that's how most people live their life so for example you know I'm sitting at home a letter arrives on on my desk you know through the from the from the post office and I read it it says You know, I've won the lottery, you know, you're going to get 5,000 pounds. And I suddenly get blown over to the planet of excitement until I realize it's actually addressed to my neighbor. It came through the wrong letterbox. And then I just get blown right off to the planet of crushed. So that's how most people are, is whether their emotion is excited or crushed is based on something outside of them. And what we're saying is take back the control, take back the control of your life, stop allowing your life to be determined by factors outside of you. So radical ownership, take back the control, start to control yourself which planet you're on, and that requires you to practice.
1: So one quick question on this, and then I want to go to a couple of questions that that have come in. Are you saying that we need to spend all of our lives on the left-hand side?
0: Well, we can't, because stuff happens, right? And we have a pandemic, our colleagues annoy us, And so even the Dalai Lama, who's masterful of his own emotional state, even he will drift over to the planet of anger at times. The difference is he doesn't stay there very long. He recognizes where he is and he shifts back to something that's more productive, to something that's more useful. Because making decisions when you're on the planet of anger actually is pretty counterproductive. But if you can morph that anger, use that emotion, because all emotions are just energetic states, designed to drive an action. So if you recognize you're angry, and then shift something like determined, which is a much more constructive place from which to operate. So he will recognize the anger inside himself arising, then he will move to a planet like determined and use that energy from the planet of determined to drive himself forward. So that's emotional awareness. I, I realize I feel bad in some way, emotional literacy is that bad anger, frustration, anxiety, fear. No, it's anger. That's literacy. Then emotional regulation enables him to change that to something like determination. Then he uses that determination to self-motivate. So in a matter of seconds, he's used four different skills of emotional intelligence, awareness, literacy, regulation, and motivation. And that can all happen in a few seconds when you get good.
1: This comes to a question that we've got uh, from Sarah Martin. Are you differentiating an emotion and a feeling in the iceberg model is that relevant
0: it's highly relevant it's a really good question because just as you know the medical literature and even the scientific literature doesn't really distinguish thinking and feeling it's all collapsed into thinking so most you know oh, feeling is just a subset of thinking it isn't right so if you don't understand the distinction between thinking and feeling you certainly won't understand the distinction between emotions and feelings so the, just very quickly the difference is Emotions are just energy in motion, e-motion. And when I talk energy, I'm meaning biological energy, the electrical energy of our heart, you know, the chemical energy of our hormonal system, the sound energy of our stomach rumbling. Every bodily system generates electrical energy, electromagnetic energy, chemical energy, pressure waves, sound waves, heat waves, light waves. All bodily systems generate energetic signals. And so if you take all of that energy from the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidney, the spleen, the immune system, your muscles, your joints, if you take all of those signals, all the electrical signals, electromagnetic signals, chemicals, if you take all of that together, that's what an emotion is. It's all of that energy, E, in motion. And the difference between an emotion and a feeling is every single second of every single day, every human being has an emotion. All of us have emotions, but we don't all have feelings. Feelings are the awareness in our mind of the energy so if I can give you a metaphor imagine your body is like an orchestra now clearly the hearts will be the string section clearly Katie that the guts will be the wind section obviously maybe the liver is the brass section and your body is playing a tune every single second of every day that's what an emotion is it's the tune so the feeling is the awareness of which tune now that's where people break down they don't know which tune their body's playing why not because they're not tuning into it forgive the pun yeah. They're not tuned into their body. They're not tuned into the energy of their body. So they don't know whether they're playing Chopin, Rachmaninoff, or Pearl Jam. They're not paying attention. But if you start to pay attention, you can start to get control and you can start to choose the tune you're going to play and feel it. So that's the difference between a feeling and emotion. Energy Thanks, and emotion. Yeah.
1: Let, let's keep moving on because I've got another couple of questions. What would you say to people who say that others or our environment controls the way we feel?
0: Well, it does for everybody until you take back control. So most human beings are controlled by others in their environment. That, that's just because they haven't developed the ability to control it themselves. So if you don't control it, who does? And that will be others in the environment. So what I'm saying to take back the control. Stop surrendering the control accidentally to others. Take it back. Radical ownership. Take back the control of your emotions. And I can't tell you that once you realize that you can control this yourself... the the amount of confidence that can give you is I realise I can control me. So whether I feel happy or sad is actually down to me. It's not down to anybody else. I dictate whether that's true or not. So that's the game changer. And, And of all the lessons we teach people in our coaching and our team stuff, you know, there's a thousand lessons on the journey from ignorance to enlightenment. I honestly think the single biggest lesson, if I could only teach people one lesson, it would be radical ownership. It's take back the control for your emotions, because it's an unbelievable game changer. You don't have to feel miserable. It's optional. But you can, you know, feel whatever emotion you want to feel. So I'll often say to people, actually, once you've taken back the control and learned to shift and develop some mastery of these emotions, you never have to feel any emotion you don't want to feel ever again. And, And people think that's ridiculous and impossible. But I can tell you, it's actually true. You don't have to feel things you don't want to feel once you've got back control.
1: One quick question, because I, I know we're running out of time here. There's a difficulty at the moment that people are working in many ways, and your home space is now a workspace, so balancing emotions is sometimes out of your control. Behaviour change is a holy grail for large organisations, even more so at the moment. Is there a way of gaining group buy-in to these techniques which are focused on the individual? Right, and also, so, uh, says, how do you get a seven-month-old to experience positive relaxation at bedtime?
0: Well, so <laughs> two, two separate questions is... First of all, don't amp the seven-year-old, uh, the seven-month-old up. So you know, many parents learn that what you do is your nice warm bath, soothing voice, calming energy, you know, to try and soothe the seven-year-old. But you can teach emotional regulation to an infant without words. So imagine you hug the teddy and then transfer the teddy to the infant. So what you're really doing in that scenario is you're imbuing the teddy with love and transferring the love to the child. No words. So if you just go, ah, and hug the teddy close to your chest and then give the child the teddy, then you're seeing, you're teaching the child that there's emotional transference going on. This thing that's been imbued with love, you're now giving the love to the child. So you can start to teach this even to nonverbal infants. And we have done this. So that's the answer to the seven-month-old is it does require a bit more practice because of course, seven-month-olds have yet to develop any emotional regulation skills. They don't really kick in to children naturally. Most children develop some degree, very poor, very unsophisticated levels, sort of three or four years old. Prior to that, most of them haven't got any emotional regulation at all. And then it sort of stops for most human beings. So this thing about the behavior change being the holy grail for organizations, it is the holy grail. And one of the reasons they haven't found the holy grail is they keep focusing on behavior. The battle is much deeper. Behavior change is the tail of the dog the change that you're really looking to think is to get people to shift their emotion. Emotion change will drive behavior change. And you can't dictate that you have to facilitate it. You have to teach people how to regulate their own emotion. And so that's the journey. So if we go beneath the surface and above the surface is behavior, which is why we're obsessed Well, we can see it, but we can't see what's going on beneath the surface, but that's really where the game is. We've got to get into the emotional change in large organizations and by the way that's the cornerstone of well-being you know you've seen many well-being initiatives over the last 10 or 15 years but the data still gets worse on mental health it's not mental it's not health the data's getting worse despite all these well-intended initiatives and that's because we're focused on the surface we're not going to where the problem really is and teaching people the ability to regulate their emotions because if we did it really would be a game changer for organizations
1: okay Great stuff, Alan. We've got one more question because it actually leads into what our webinar is next week as well. So just a a headline really. In, In these isolated times, can we help with being more connected with others by sharing how we're feeling to raise awareness with our colleagues? Should we share?
0: Well, yes, in principle, but there is a risk. So sometimes when people share, what they really mean is vent. So I'm not a big fan of venting. You know, so I often say to people, the most dangerous question you have in your day is when you get home, when we were going out to work and coming back, uh, and your partner says to you, how was your day? Oh, you wouldn't believe the day I had you. And that venting is just a rehearsal and a reinforcement of a negative. So be very careful when you're sharing is acknowledge the difficulty, but be aware to try and shift through that sharing into a more constructive space over to the left-hand side of the universe, try and use that sharing to get you. If you're just venting, you're reinforcing a negative. And every time you share a negative, it reinforces the gravity of that planet. So if you keep telling people how frustrated you are with whatever it is in your life, you'll get really good at frustration because you kept rehearsing it. So I'm a big fan of share if you like, but use the sharing to shift yourself, not reinforce the negative.
1: Okay. All right well we're coming to uh we're coming to the end now I just want to just kind of in terms of the takeaways for me it feels like there's a a kind of focus on emotional well-being very much a focus on that and the practice of skills every day especially breathe shift mastery and the universe of emotions as well And I know we have a we have an app for that where you can actually just download it very simply and and, and monitor where you are in the universe and you get a an audit, an emotional audit, if you like. Any last last thoughts or words, Alan?
0: Just to to encourage people, this is something that you can do today and it can make a massive difference just to regulate your breathing. If you then add in the ability and just start practising shifting your emotion, right? However you need to do that, put your favourite piece of music on and really indulge, you know, your inner, I don't know, karaoke queen or king Do something that lifts your spirits and practice that. Practice feeling better, but not just feeling it in the moment, but try and observe it, describe it to yourself, reinstall it and relive it. So in that rehearsal cycle, if you do that, you'll be amazed at how quickly you can start to get good at those things. And that will improve your immunity. That will improve your performance. That will improve your resilience. It's really very fast and it can be an absolute game changer. If we've piqued your curiosity, or you've enjoyed anything we've talked about in this podcast, please subscribe, email us, or just visit our website at complete-coherence.com.